We had a ton of questions coming in, and I was uh, trying to sort through them, trying to combine some of them, trying to find the themes that you were all <laughs> asking about. Woo! That's going to be tough to do. But I, I figured we'd start with a softball question. Sure. Is that okay? Sure. All right. What is your favorite thing about Biola from Tori, a Biola student? Do you know who Tori is? Yeah, I do. <laughs> my, is Tori my favorite here? thing about Biola is that there is still a little bit more than 50 to 60% of the faculty and staff that believe the Bible and that are committed to the Great Commission and to the Word of God and to evangelism. Uh, maybe 70%. But we've got woke faculty that are com coming in and eroding the university. And, and we've got to find a way to get rid of them. And I don't know how to do it. I've gone to confront some of them that they ought to leave. Uh, some of them got so incensed when the Supreme Court passed the ruling about uh, not government, the government doesn't support abortion, that they're, they're all pro-choice, which we have a doctrinal statement they're supposed to sign to be pro-life, that some of them left. Wow. They couldn't believe the gall of the Republican Party or whatever they were saying. So there are problems at Biola, but look at me, okay? The Christian College Coalition is falling apart. Christian colleges are dangerous places to send your kids unless you check those schools out. Because there are, there are some schools that kids go there and they let their guard down because it's a Christian school. And they take in whatever, and it's poison, and they don't know it, and the parents don't know it. Because the advertising says one thing, and what the faculty's like is different. Biola is not there. It's one of the schools that's, the, that's stayed true to the, to the faith more than any other school I know. But it's not perfect, and we've got erosion coming in, and we're doing stuff to stand against it. I've, I don't think I haven't made some enemies. But... Uh, um, but what I do like about it is that we're still standing pretty firm. And at least there's a resistance movement against the encroachments of this stuff. And it's not going to come in our watch, at least for God help us. So I like that. I like the fact that Biola is still, uh, by and large, a faithful institution. The lesson is be careful where you send your kid to school. And especially if they major in the humanities. Oh, uh, please don't do that. Anyway, go ahead. All right, thank you. I love what you had to say when, as you were distinguishing, um, as you were talking about guilt and shame. Yes. Um, I'm going to combine these two questions. Is guilt or shame ever good? And is there a healthy guilt that doesn't lead to unhealthy shame? Well, I don't think so. Uh, what is guilt? Guilt is a sense that... I've done something wrong, and I feel guilty about it because somehow or other I'm responsible, and I, I, I don't know, I kind of need to do something about it. And I think that what that does is it denies the complete sufficiency of the cross. And I don't think that we believe Romans uh, 8, 1 and Colossians 2. I just don't think we believe them. And I'm saying that you, we need to get to where we actually believe them, and that's going to change our inner lives. 
What I do think we need to do is to feel what I'm trying to distinguish as godly sorrow. Now, that's not nothing, folks. That's, that's when I've done something wrong. There's a sadness that comes in my heart. It's not a self-condemnation. Okay. That's one big difference. Because guilt and shame, are, I start self-condemning myself. I don't condemn myself. What I do is admit to God and to myself that I am pitiful. And I, and I have got a lot of work to do in my life. I've got to get on it and grow in this area because that wasn't appropriate. And I may need to go to that person and ask them for forgiveness and reconciliation, whatever. So all of that is still in place. And I still come to God, but I don't, first of all, clean myself up by confessing and all that so I can get, come to him. I come to him in the midst of my bad stuff and say, I'm a mess. Do you, do you love me? <laughs> and then I move to confess and acknowledge later. So that would be my view. But, but, but having godly sorrow is not like, you know, you, you just get a free pass. I mean, it's a legitimate feeling of sadness for what I've done. It's acknowledgement that I just did something objectively wrong, and I am, I am going to be drawn to God by this. It's, but it's hopeful. It's more optimistic that God has taken care of that, okay. but he wants me to grow from this. And I still have to, you know, ask for forgiveness or whatever Great. I may have to do. So anyway, I could be wrong about it, but that's where I'm at. Well, this next question, I okay. think, dovetails nicely. They're asking it based on, John, on James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This Is this saying it is necessary to confess your offense directly to the person against whom you have sinned or confess it generally to somewhere else, someone else? Well, I, I, I think that it would generally mean confess your sins one to another like you would confess to a priest. But I don't, I, I don't believe that we need to confess to priests, but I do believe that what we do need to do is to acknowledge what we've done to our brothers and sisters and, and receive, oh, admonishment or, or it's the one another's of Scripture, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think confessing our sins to one another is really healing. And I mean, I've got some close friends in the, in the body where I can tell them stuff about me and they can get on me, but I, they've earned the right because they love me. And that's extremely healing. Now, if, if, if it's appropriate to go confess to a person that you've wronged, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There are certain occasions, though, when it's not, it would be sharing with someone something that is not going to do any good. If the person is, you think is, would be willing to receive that, and they would still be hurt and, and angry and maybe upset with you, but they would be really willing to say, you know what, I'm really mad and I'm not over it yet, but I, I, I thank you for saying that. And I want you to know that I'm, I want to work toward forgiving you more and more. Now that's, that's but if the person just is, is got a vendetta and they're just closed to anything you're going to say to them. In fact, if you come up and confess your sins to them, they're going to start manipulating you and doing things that are manipulative, then that's, that's a pointless confession. Mm -hmm. It's casting pearls before. So it's giving somebody the truth, but they can't digest it. 
And it actually is counterproductive to that person because it's another step in hardening their hearts on the occasion of your confession. So we need to be wise about taking biblical texts and, and combining them with other texts and having a sane, holistic approach to these matters rather than proof texting, because uh, that can get us in trouble. That, that's, could, could we move off the subject? <laughs> oh. I wanted to get to some really thorny ones, but, but anyway, but that ahead, be, if, they, if that's where people are at, that's fine. Could uh, confession be one of the ways or, uh, that you see godly sorrow in someone else? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, acknowledging, acknowledging that you've done something. Yeah, of course. Okay. And asking for their mercy for sure. Next question. When the culture's narrative is based on living your own truth and love what or who you love, how do we counteract this? Act, how do we counteract this with winsomeness? Yeah. Um, well, you, you, you need to know wh wh how to defend your faith uh, and why you believe what you believe. And there's some pretty easy little books that you can read out there that are, are written at a level, at different levels. But you, you owe it to the Lord and to the church that at some point in your life, you're going to buy an introductory little textbook about defending the faith or about learning answers to people that people have against Christianity and some evidence for, for Christianity. And, um, and that would be good for you. So what you can do is, is you, can <clears throat> you, you can say to the person, well, you know, I, I think my truth is good or something like that, but you have your truth. Or, yeah, living your own truth. Yeah. Love what or who you love. Yeah, well, try to find out something that they care about very deeply. And then treat it in light of their view. And, and they, uh, the absolutist will come out of the closet very quickly. So, for example, what I'm trying to say is nobody believes this. But that's the thing you've got to say in culture to be respected by culture. You've got to say this or your friends will shun you. And so it's a way to be safe. So I was, and I ever, I've, this happened years ago now, but I was at a 7-Eleven, and, and I, it was a long line, and there was a guy in front of me, and we knew we had a long wait, so we started talking, and it turned to ethics and moral issues, and I don't know how it got there. But um, he said, yeah, he said, you know, I think that whatever is true uh, for you is true for you, and that's great. But I have my own truth, and it's true for me, and, you know, we ought to live and let live and not judge other people's truths. I said, well, you know, I think I understand what you're saying. And I said, I don't know what you're going to think of this, but I've got four friends. And once a month, we, the five of us put uh, uh, money in a kitty. I think I said $50 in a kitty. And we buy a, gal, uh, uh, a drum of sulfuric acid, and we go out to Lake Paris. One guy's got a boat, and we, we go out. And we dump the acid in the lake, and we wait to see how many fish we've killed that's belly up to the top. And whoever has got the closest number of fish with kills wins the 250 minus the cost of the sulfuric acid. It is a blast. <laughs> because I found out that this guy was deeply committed to the environment. Oh, wow. And his blood vessels. So all of a sudden, he became an absolute... 
He, I, I said, you know, I'm not an expert on body language, but it looks to me like what you're, you're thinking of my friends and me is that we're doing something wrong. So it occurs to me, sir, that you're only a relativist in areas of your life that's convenient, like your sexual ethic. But when it comes to things that you know are right and that matter to you, you become an absolutist very quickly. And see, people are not consistent in, their, in, in this, you know, love anybody they want to kind of a thing. Well, could I, go, could I go shack up with your mom for three or four weeks when your dad's out of town? And I'm kind of into bonded stuff. I mean, with that, you know, that's my truth. That's my truth. You think, and I want to school your mom. She's not into that's okay. She'll learn. And I, you know that. They're, but you see, don't put your stuff on me, here. huh? Dr. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't put your stuff on me. So what? I, I, you you come up with an example that you know the other person is going to think is wrong. Am I? Are you tracking? And then you say, well, you know, but based on your own principles, uh, then I, I think that uh, you should allow me to have the views that I do that you somehow get all huffy about. What's that about? So that's one thing to do. And the other thing to do is to say that that view, that everybody has their own truth and we all ought to live with our own truth and love whomever we want, is actually immoral, and here's why. It silences the protest of evil. Because if you're going to protest racism, or you're going to protest child molestation, or a number of other social evils, the first thing you've got to do is judge it's wrong. And that's the reason why you're protesting it. But if you think that you should be tolerant of them, meaning you're not allowed to say they're wrong because that's their truth, I'm only allowed to live by my truth, and they're free to live by theirs if they want to be racist. Who am I to judge? Well, then, then I can't protest racism. Does that make sense to you? Because I'm, ha I'm going to have to judge that, what, that that's wrong for everybody. And so that, any, any view that allows, disallows the protest of evil hmm. is a hideous moral doctrine. And, and loving anybody you want to uh, again, they, they wouldn't want their parents to have been that way hmm. or whatever. So there are ways of, of trying to explain that. Good. Right. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's great. Sorry about going nope. in, in a way that was a little bit that's okay. out there. <laughs> I forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 High five on that one, dude. That was so good. <laughs> Okay. All right. So here's the next one. Yeah. So I believe that the intention of every author of every book in the Bible was to write down the inerrant words of God as they were inspired by their experiences with God. But being that the authors of the Bible themselves were all fallen people like you and I, what are some of the best arguments that you've come across that help confirm for you that the authors have never, even accidentally, tainted the purity of God's inerrant inspiration with their own flawed thoughts and opinions while they were writing down the moral takeaways of their experiences? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is a great question. But your understanding of inerrancy is, is uh, which means that when properly interpreted, everything the Bible asserts to be true is true. 
it contains no affirmation of falsehood or error. That's, that's what inerrancy means. It doesn't mean it doesn't use figures of speech. When it says everybody in the whole town was at the door, that's a figure of speech. If there were a couple of guys home watching a baseball game, I'm not going to get all my shorts bundled up on it. Uh, you know, so there, there are generalizations and stuff like that. But when interpreted with sane principles of ordinary interpretation we use every day when we talk to one another, uh, the Bible properly interpreted, whatever it says is true, is true. The, it's not the writers that were inspired. It was the writings that were inspired. And so you, you, the, Luke did not know he was under inspiration. He tells us in Luke 1, he did historical research and wrote. He just did his homework and wrote. But what the doctrine of inspiration says, all Scripture is inspired by God. And if you look at the way some of these words are used, it's like, it's like the way the, the, that a boat on the water, the, the, this, this current uh, directs the rudder, and it goes where the stream is going. And so God did not override human authors and their personalities to communicate his word, but he was able to do so in a way that protected them from affirming things that he did not want to be affirmed. And so the ultimate author of Scripture is God's Spirit, but it is in and through the agency of human beings. And uh, that's not an incoherent notion at all, because a lot of times we will accomplish things intentionally by means of, of some other agent. And the, the only difference is that in this case, uh, God, God protected their, their own literary styles and writings so that they, they wrote from their own personalities, but within a boundary that the Spirit made sure was, was, was not affirming error or lies. Now, the best case for this uh, is, is the following. The, the, the argument that I like, uh, and I published on this, but um, you start with arguments for God's existence. And if you, you show that it's beyond reasonable doubt that there is a personal God, and there are e easy to understand arguments that God is real, and it's pretty easy to respond to the arguments that are against God's existence. Then you say, okay, well, which religion should I choose? And you, 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 there are ways to decide that. But one principle is, well, is there any religion that requires the supernatural activity of God to explain how it got off the ground? Now, you don't with Islam. Because in Islam, most of the Quran was written by Muhammad who said that he went into a cave and... and, and, and and it was revealed to him while he was in a cave. And I've asked Muslims, how in the world do I know the guy's not lying through his teeth? I mean, can, is, do you have any evidence that, that, that this actually happened? Well, yeah, the, 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 the beauty of the Arabic from a simple common man. And the truth is that the, from what I've heard from Arabic scholars is the Arabic is terrible in a lot of places. So, I mean, they have no evidence, but you look at us and we have historical evidence that the New Testament documents are historically reliable, and you can get the case for Christ by Lee Strobel and read that. That'll help you. And, 
And if we assume that the New Testament documents, there are 27 of them, are reasonably reliable historical documents that were all written in the first century, we're not assuming they're inspired. They may have mistakes in them at this point. But we are assuming that, that, that Jesus, there's enough evidence to trust them to have given a reasonably accurate account of Jesus' life and some of his teachings. Maybe some of them were lost or made up, but most of his central teachings. And, and then his miracles. <clears throat> and so you can then show that Jesus actually was this incarnate Son of God who rose from the dead because the evidence for the resurrection and for the historicity of the New Testament documents is so strong that arguments against their general historical reliability are usually, are, are usually so weak that it's because people start with the assumption that there's no God or miracles never happen, and that guides what they're allowed to find. Whereas I'm a person who starts with God's existence, and once I've got that on the table, then I say to myself, I have no idea if, if God did miracles or not. But he sure could if he wanted to. So what i got to do is go look and see. I don't have any preconditions about what he... I don't know the divine mind. I know there's a God. There has to be. The universe began to exist. It's fine-tuned for life and a bunch of stuff like that. But so I use historicity to decide that, we, that Jesus rose from the dead and was the Son of God. Are, are you with me? That, that's the second stage. And then I say... We also have a, a, a accurate enough texts to tell us the gist of what Jesus believed about some things that were really important to him. Hey, I, I'm going to give you the fact that maybe some of his teachings were fabricated by the church 40 years later. Okay, I'll give you that for the sake of argument. But the, the core teachings, these documents are too early we can date them so that there wasn't enough time for legend to creep in, and they were actually preserved through Jewish oral tradition, which was highly, people were highly skilled in an oral culture to memorize and to retain the accuracy of things through two generations. And the New Testament materials were all written well within a two-generation period of time. And so what I'm going to say then is that we know what Jesus' view of the Bible was. Uh, as a matter of fact, he said that there's not a jot or a tittle in the Old Testament that won't be fulfilled until uh, that will be that will not be fulfilled before the end of the age. Now I, don't, I can't do this, but here is an R in Hebrew, and here is a D in Hebrew, and the difference is a little thing right here called a tittle. It's a little tiny thing that differentiates an R from a D. And a, and a dot is, uh, is, is what you might call the letter Y or Yod. It's just this little tiny thing that does like that. And what Jesus is saying is that even down to the words that were used to write the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. Why? Because they're all true. And there are other passages where Jesus affirms the truth of Scripture. Now, you might say, well, that only covers the Old Testament. But no, it doesn't because it covers anything that was Scripture. Now, at the time he said that, the only thing that fell under that 
group was the Old Testament. But if there was anything else that turned out to be scriptural, it would follow under it too. And it turns out that Jesus placed his imprimatur on the, on, the, on the apostles and some of their colleagues, and their writings were considered to be scripture early, and uh, Jesus actually predicted that he would re- give them remembrance of some of the things he said. So I believe in inerrancy because I believe the historical evidence is sufficient for me to know Jesus rose from the dead, was the son of God, and what he thought about the Bible, namely that he thought it was the inerrant word of God. So I believe in the Bible's inerrancy because I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus because I believe the Bible's inerrant. Mm-hmm. But that's circular. The Bible's inerrant. Why? Because it says so. Well, why do you know, how do you know what it says is true? Because it's inerrant. Well, that's not a, that's, that's a circular <laughs> argument. You don't want to do that. So that's my basic argument for it. Then it's, fulfilled by, then it's proved further by archaeological discoveries that have confirmed unbelievably, an unbelievable number of details. Uh, a lot of the problems people have is due to, to Western misinterpretations of ancient Near Eastern texts and uh, so on. So that's enough on that. So there, um, obviously, this topic was going to stir up yeah, things it is. in people's hearts and minds, and we were, we were prepared for that. And I just want to, this one isn't necessarily a question, it's more of a statement, okay. but I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond speak, to it, respond to it, maybe speak some life, some encouraging sure. words to this person. Um, and there's several that... Okay, uh, let's go. Let's go with those. Dr. Moreland, since I became a Christian in 1969, after serving in the U.S. Marines, much guilt has followed me into mm. civilian life. The most hurtful has been with my siblings. I'm the oldest and black sheep of the family. None of them have called me or invited me to the dinner table or their home in 50 years. Um, um, this breaks my heart. And uh, let, let, Lord, right now, whoever this is, Uh, we who are this dear person's brothers and sisters can't hear this without it breaking our hearts. Just feel so sad for this person, so sorry. And would you you please bring them a substitute, whoever this is, a substitute family with friends and, and people that he loves so that he can let them go. And I'm asking that you would restore to his life more friendships than family members that he lost. Amen. Amen. What I would say would be that if you have tried to reconcile and ask the question, why, what, what have I done that has made me excluded from you, my siblings, interacting with me. I really would like to know if, because I would like to see if there's any way I can make it right. So do it humbly. If you've never done it, be humble about it. Don't get defensive and defend yourself. Be humble and, and, and send an email or, or send a letter. I'd, do, I'd rather do that and, rather than call because it gives them time to think about it. And, and if that gives you an opening, then you can start a conversation and maybe acknowledge that there's a role that you played, and then maybe you could find that there was a role that they played. So that, that would be a way to take steps towards reconciliation. If they live close to you, 
This might be a little bit of a stretch, but if they would be willing, one of your brothers or sisters would be willing to get into counseling together so that you, you could work toward increased connection, that they'd need to want to do that, but that would be something you could follow up with if you sent a letter and opened up and, and they took advantage to try to communicate with you and started that process. If you've tried that or if this doesn't work, <clears throat> then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to cut your losses. And you're going to have to say, like many people in the history of the church have had to do, and, and that's, you know, Jesus said that by comparison with, to, with, to your love with your family, if, if your, your love isn't, for me, greater than that, then, there's, there, then you've you got a disordered set of loves. We need to love the Lord Jesus more than our families. It didn't mean we're not to love our families. It just means we love him more. And I would say to try to cultivate, uh, find new ways to be, draw in, become intimate with, with Jesus. There are, there are books that are not standard evangelical books, but they're, they're, there's some good literature on, on the inner life and how to draw close to Jesus. Dallas Willard's writings do a great job of this. So, so work on that. And then I would work, I would say to myself, how can I assess my friendship standing right now? Do I have any friends, and how close or do I not? If you're having struggles with friends, then you, I would be working on that. What Get some counseling. Why am I unable to form friendship relationships? What am I doing wrong? And grow. Grow from that. If you're doing pretty well, I would begin to cultivate those friendships and build a new family in the church, in the body of Christ. And, and, and that, over time, will become increasingly satisfying to you But if you give energy and time to that. That's about the only thing I can say to a really tough situation. It took courage for you to share that. Thank you. Yeah, I love the way you concluded that because there's someone else who asked, how do I move forward when I'm not forgiven by someone else after a genuine apology? And you answered that one at the end there. Thank you for that. This one is the opposite end. Um, opposite part of forgiveness. Not forgiving myself and others keeps the, fame, keeps the pain fresh so I won't do it again or be harmed the same way. How do I get past this? So, so not forgiving others and himself does what? Keeps the pain fresh. Y okay, yes. So I won't do it again or, oh. or be harmed the same way. How do I get past uh, okay. this? Okay, so, so if you've done something to someone else, you don't want to forgive yourself because it keeps the pain of the results of doing that thing fresh, and that's a deterrent to mm -hmm. doing it again. Your approach to life is not emphasizing the positive reasons why you want to move on. Instead, you're motivating yourself by negative reasons. It's like if you can harm yourself and suffer, then maybe you won't do that again. But Jesus didn't, did not motivate people that way. He painted a picture of the possibility of what life could be like living in the kingdom of God with, a, with real fervency and earnestness. And he offered this positive invitation to begin the process of spiritual disciplines to enter more and more into that life. 
And it's possible to attain real growth in there. It really is. Where you get to the point where things that don't matter don't bother you anymore. You're not afraid of dying. Uh, you, you can learn to have joy and peace when, when life is falling apart. This is really possible. And I would say that, that you're punishing yourself through a negative type of motivation, and I don't think that's the way to do it. Instead, it would better to be approaching this as to how can I cultivate being the kind of person who is so filled with generosity toward other people and understanding and kindness that I would, could imagine myself doing that to them again. And that's the way I'd, I'd go because the way you're going is, is like an addiction. You're sort of addicted to the pain and it will work for a little while, but it's like Turkish delight. It'll run out, and you're going to need to, be, to inflict yourself with more pain to get the same deterrent buzz. And it's, lead, it's a cycle that you, will lead you down to enslavement where your mind will always be preoccupied with, your, with this issue, and you won't be able to get it off your mind. Now, the other one was uh, um, other people for, did something to me. And um, I, I want to keep the pain of that so, so I don't get it hap have it happen again. Not forgiving myself and others mm -hmm. keeps the pain fresh so I won't do it again or be harmed the same way. Okay. Well, look, there, there are other ways. First of all, I get the idea that if someone has hurt you and you have reason to think that it wasn't really 50-50 or maybe a little bit more your issue than the other person. You've always got to look. Remember, first look to yourself and then look to the other person. That, just that's the same principle of healthy living. And so you've got to first of all start by saying, I, I need to, to, to deal with what I can control. And, and that's me. <laughs> and so what, if anything, did I contribute and how can I uh, make that right in some way that could be heard. Now, work on that. that that's where you start. Uh, the second thing, then, that you do is you assess whether that person is the sort of person who would be willing to hear uh, you come to them and express your, your sense of hurt as to what they did and and, and, and speak to them about it civilly and, and, and say, could we, talk, could we work this through because I found this really hurtful and painful and I, I would like to not have this tension between us and is there a way that we could kind of reach an agreement and apologize to one another, however that would end up. If, if you don't think that that would work, then I, I don't think there's anything wrong in staying away from dangerous people. Paul did it. You know, he said so-and-so, I forgot the guy's name, but he said, he did me much harm, watch out for him. You know, don't get close to the guy. Well, there are people I avoid and uh, because I, they're toxic and they just take the life out of me. And I got enough stuff taking the life out of me. You know, how about you? I mean, so I don't need a toxic people doing it. So I would say that you may be justified 
in staying away from them. But, but don't let don't, the, the pain, remembering the pain is the wrong way to go about it. Um, you want to get rid of that sense of pain. And that doesn't mean you're going to lose your motivation. You'll remember what it was like. But you can move away from those people without having to torture yourself with the pain. That, that would be my basic answer to that. Thank you. Yeah. This one's a little lengthy one, but I think I thought mm -hmm. it would be... Uh... Feel free to leave whenever you need to. All right. Thank you. Oh, yeah, good to see you, ma'am. You ladies came. You're sweethearts, I'll tell you that. Oh, you thank you. Thank you. I was actually hitting on you, ma'am, but 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 uh, but, it, but somehow it didn't work. Uh, yeah, I know. Okay, I'll get that off. Just kidding. I was just kidding. All right, go ahead. My wife just gave me the <laughs> All right. Okay, go ahead, Manny. <laughs> How do you stand for God's kingdom in the broken world without holding non-Christians accountable like we would hold other Christians accountable? For example, if you have someone in your life that is part of the LGBTQIA community and in a relationship with another member of that community, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 discusses that you are not to interact with, the immoral, with immoral Christians, but you should interact with immoral people who are of the world. Are you still being true to God's kingdom when you extend your friendship and to love them or attending their marriage, baby shower, etc.? Very, very difficult. And I think this is one that needs to be judged on a case-by-case -case basis. Because I think the rule of thumb would be that you, uh, you, 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 sh you show kindness. We're talking now about an individual you show love and kindness to them, but make clear that I don't, this is, in my view of the world, this is, this is not right, and it's not conducive to human flourishing. And so I, I would see a sexual, a heterosexual, homosexual activity uh, being like driving a car in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, if my neighbors went every Saturday and took their cars and saw how far they could get in driving in on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and whoever got the farthest you know, won the, the, the prize for that day, that might be fun for a little bit, but eventually it's going to ruin their cars because cars aren't made, were not made to function that way. Hmm. They were made to be driven on, on smooth highways, not in sand, salt water and sand. And what kind of neighbor would I be? if I never said anything to them about what they're doing and, and warn them and said, you know, I gotta tell you, I know what you're doing is fun, but if I, can I just say that I think in the long run, this is not gonna be conducive to your well-being because you're gonna hurt that car and you're gonna be a lot of money getting a new one. And I hate to, you know, I know you've been trying to save up for some, some things and I just don't want you to go to see a hurt. Same thing with homosexuality, I was on a radio show and I was, uh, they had a guy, it was a, a trap, because we were supposed to be talking about the, whether we're souls or brains. And, and the, these two guys, this guy, this scientist had uh, a biologist on there who I had signed a statement called the Nashville Statement, where I said that I think that traditional marriage is the only way of pro appropriate sexuality uh, in God's eyes. 
And, and this guy was married to, a, 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 was in a gay marriage, another man had children. What are you going to say to my kids? If you, so they set me up, and he was there at, wow. to ask me a question, and I didn't have any time to get ready, but I was already ready for it. But, but he, he's, you know, he said, well, what are you going to tell my boys about their daddies? I mean, you, what are you going to say? And I basically told him, I'd say, I'd say Timmy, you know, you've got, you're in a family here, and, but I have to tell you that in the long run, your, your daddies are, 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 are without meaning to they're, they're going to really harm their lives, and they're not going to be the kind of people they could be if they led a chaste life because mm-hmm. they're, at, they're functioning in the way they weren't made to work. And remember, Paul was against homosexual activity, not because the Bible taught against it. It's very important. He was against it because it was contrary to the way we were made. Look at Romans 1. It was contrary to our nature. And that means that it is available to all people everywhere without a Bible to know that this is not proper behavior because all people have access to the information needed to make the judgment that this is, this is, this is not virtuous and it's, it's viceful. So the point is that uh, it can be loving to tell someone like that that, that this, is not, this is wrong and here's why. Loving people isn't just always being accepting of what they're doing. If you have friends that love you and they've never told you something you needed to hear but didn't want to hear, I don't think they're friends. So you have to get to the point where you can earn the right to do that. And I would start by just being a basically just loving and accepting. But I would make clear about my views. And eventually, if, if I earned a connection... I would explain to them, this may be six months later or whatever it might be, that this is, this, that I've never told you why that I'm sad about your gay practice. And here it is, and I would go with the car on the bottom of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. You're not, I know that this isn't going to be in your best interest over the long haul because this isn't the way you were made to work. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm concerned about it. You're, you're going to hurt your own life, but you're getting a little Turkish delight now. Now, that, that, so, so you love and accept. I, I, and if they don't, you know, if they don't want to listen, then I think you just continue to, if they're your kids or, or close friends, you continue to love them and make clear who you are. Now, do you go to their wedding? Individual choice? I would be inclined to say yes, as long as you've made it clear that you're there because you love your daughter or whomever, but you're not there because you're supporting this act, but you're there to show love to her in spite of your disagreements. And in that case, I'd probably err on going, but I could see an argument for, for not doing it. But if you don't, then I, I would just urge you to express your, your, your discontent about this in a, in a way that's not harsh or consigning them to hell or anything like that. Because you don't go to hell because you're that way. You, you go to hell because you reject Jesus Christ. And there are some people who have never heard, and that's a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the way I'd go about it. But it's a tough issue, and there's plenty of room for disagreement among 
thoughtful Christians on this one. Sure. Thank you for that. Did you want to add something? Did you want to ask me something, Ray? Okay. All right. How are you doing? How are you doing okay? I'm, I'm having more fun. I'm worried about these people. All right. Well, it's, it's 7.15. Are you getting anything out of this? Yeah. You, no, no, I didn't mean that for... But Okay, do you, you, 15 more minutes? 15 minutes. Let's yep. do it 15 All more right. minutes. All right. All right. Um, just to let you know, our kids' ministry is good to go till about 7.30, and depending on how Dr. Molin is feeling... Um, he mentioned he might be able to host a, answer a few more questions after 7.30. But. Quickly, the two books, one is on dealing with depression and anxiety, and the other is a book where I document 50 miracles that have happened today and I know about, and I show how to tell the difference between a coincidence and a miracle, and I, I, I show you that miracles are happening all over the country, and they're real. They're not just trumped up. It's really an encourager. Anyway, yeah. so there you go. Yeah. Go ahead. Great. I'm severely hurt by my best friend who killed himself, and I also have guilt with it. Is it possible to have to forgive God if I feel he has wronged me in the death of my best friend? Man, that's, a, that, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I, see, I, I don't want to approach it through a sense of obligation. Um, do I have to? forgive God. That, that's not the way I would look at it, because that is more looking at it. Do I have a moral duty to, to forgive God? So here, here's what I would say. 28% of Israel's hymn book that they used in worship were contained complaints against God for not being faithful to his covenant for never showing up when he's needed, uh, you know, for, for being asleep. Uh, I think one of the Psalms actually accuses God of being on the john. I mean, uh, and this is the hymn book. And what this shows us is that, that, that lament Psalms are clear indicators. And the, some of the prophets did the same thing. The complaints against God that you're actually feeling are legitimate to express, and God is big enough to handle it. Because he knows you got it, but you're faking it, and you're suppressing it. So if you're not telling him what you're feeling, but you're coming and, and, and doing the you know, pink-dotted Swiss and flowery thing, God says, could you wake up and have a real relationship with me? I know you're hacked off, and you're acting like you're not, and I'm not that way. I don't want to get the false self. I want the real you. And the real you is mad at me. So tell me about it. So you start and you express it. Now, you know that, that when you're accusing God of something, that you're insane. Okay. Uh, so you, so th these are moments of, of needed insanity. Because we all need to get it off our chest. But when you come to your senses, you realize... God is, God is not capable of doing something wrong. And so he is not at fault for this. This is something he let happen. And you know what? Maybe he let it happen because if my friend had lived, he might have done tremendous damage to himself and other people in the next five or ten years. And so maybe it was best for God not to cause him, but to allow this to happen 
for his well-being over the long run and other people's. I don't know, but I'm sure that God had a good reason that I might not know of for letting this happen, and I'm giving you an example of one. So then what that would tell me would be that I should, after I've expressed that I'm hacked off at God, then I, need, I eventually come to my senses, and I, and I realized, dude, God, God, God has never changed. He, he's, he's good, and he's not bad. He's not a bad being. He's a good being. And you know what? By holding this against him, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting myself in the stinking foot. Because if I want to heal and, and to go work through this, I need to draw close to God and near to him. I've got a bad image of who he is right now, and I've got to learn to set that aside and, and grab, grab hold of what the real God who actually exists is like, and I'll run to him like crazy because I'm falling apart. So that's the way I'd go about it rather than as an invitation to draw close to the person who's really the only ultimate one that can bring healing rather than do I have to. Mm. I, I think that's not the best way to look at the deal. Thank you. That's great. I yeah. love that. I think this one's pretty uh, appropriate for these times that we're in. How are Christians to judge others in this whole identity crisis? And they're referring to the changing of pronouns, changing gender. Is it expected they are to accept others and even sometimes live with them in college? How would you advise them to stand up for their Christian values and not be coerced into accepting behaviors like this? Well, See, there's a principle in, I was on a bioethics committee for eight years with a group of nursing homes, and there is a principle in medical ethics that says that no physician or healthcare provider nurse should be required to do something that is against his or her own values, okay? So if a nurse is, is against abortion, they should not be required to perform one. They, they have the right to recuse themselves, and they can find another nurse to perform the abortion, is, is an example. And that is, a, that is based on the principle of respecting persons as having intrinsic value and not as mere means to an end, that we all have inherent intrinsic and value. Now, the unbeliever doesn't have any basis for why they think that. They have no grounds for it. I've read their literature, and it's ridiculous. And the smartest ones of them admit there's, ab it's a, it's, there's absolutely no basis for the claim that human beings have equal value because we're not equal in any way. So that's, that's just a ridiculous thing. The only thing that can really ground it is if we're all made, if we're all the same in some way that, that has gravitas. And that is the image of God, the only way to ground it. Even though some are smart and ugly, uh, dumb, good-looking, ugly, and all the rest, we differ in so many ways. We're all made in the image of God, and we're equal as such in that way. So the, the point is, then, that uh, um, this principle is a way of respecting the dignity of that person's mm. autonomy and choosing what things in their value system, and if they've got a crazy value system, like, you know, they, they think rape's fine, well, then that doesn't count. But, but it's some kind of a reasonable value system. Now... What happens then is that what you're doing to me is you're requiring me to use pronouns that are contrary to my value system. Why should I be coerced 
to do that. Now, I'm telling you, you'll get fired. And there are people that have gotten fired that I know of because they refuse to use the relevant pronouns. And it is not... It is, it is dangerous not to go along with this in today's society. I mean literally dangerous. So you've got to count the cost. But I'm going to use the pronouns. I'm not going to use pronouns that other people ask me to use because I don't believe they have the moral right to ask me to violate my own deep-seated moral convictions any more than asking a nurse to, who's pro-life to do an abortion. So I'm not going to go along with the pronouns. I'm not going to try to make a big deal out of it. I mean, I, just, I'd rather be left alone about this, frankly. But I'm, I'm going to say, uh, you know, if I, I'm going to call you, and I mean no offense by this, so if... But the problem is today with the postmodern society, the wrongness of an action has nothing to do with your intention. It has everything to do with the result. No kidding. So if you didn't intend to do something, but, but they, they experienced it as a racist slur, you're guilty of racism even though you had no idea you were doing it and no intention. Because the history of postmodernism that began with the, Fr the French can anything good come from France, um, ended up being that a view of language that the, that the meaning of language does not reside in the author, but it resides in the impact it has in victimizing the hearer. There's only one exception to that, and that's their own writings because they, they write books and expect you to understand the meaning of their intentions and what they write. And if, so it's just complete hypocrisy. So anyway, I'm jumping around. But uh, yeah, I, 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 you count the cost. If you decide to go along with it just to preserve the peace and you don't think this is a hill you want to die on, I understand that. I, I'm not going to, for me, I've just decided that I have a, I don't agree with this whole movement. I think it's taking the culture in a really bad place. And I, don't, I think we're too, we get too much in a hissy fit about people being offended. I'm reading a book now about what the Bible teaches on offense. And it says that we are not to be people that are easily take offense. Offense is not something that we should be into. Um, because that's not weighty enough. If you're offended by something I said, well, go to see a therapist. Um, be, be, uh, because, because, look, uh, the, what really matters is the truth of what I said, not whether you like or dislike it. That's what matters, and you've got to deal with my claims. Now, I, I, I'm not talking about intending to harm. That's different. Uh, but I'm talking about taking offense. And if people are going to take offense if I use he and she and that's all I'm willing to do, I'm, I really am sorry because I don't want them to take offense. But I'm going to stick to the old view that that's not my intent and that I have a right to, to, to live consistent with my own Judeo-Christian value system, which, by the way, I've done a bad job for a long time in sustaining stability and culture. Thank you. Yeah. I think we've got enough time for just one all more right. question. I just turned 40 and have had same-sex attraction for as long as I can remember. 
as this attraction does not feel like a choice, how can I change this if it is considered a sin in God's eyes? Uh, you, you need to go see a Christian therapist. Um, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer a question like that. Um, I, I do. Ray, you have something. Oh, your former student, Beckett Cook, would love to speak into that and love on them a little bit. Yeah, Beckett Cook, who is a student of mine, has a radio show or a podcast. You too. You, uh, you, yes, I meant to say that. How, would you tell me how to, get, how to find it? Well, he- here you go. Well, hello. Um, Dr. Moreland's former student, Beckett Cook, has a YouTube show called Beckett Cook Show. And this he- is his story, and he, uh, he'll love on you. Yeah, he had same-sex attraction for the longest time, and he got unbelievably zapped. And I mean zapped by the Spirit when he went to a church, which he thought churches were crazy. And he had the mistake of going to one. And the, and the word would spoke to him, and then he, a guy laid hands on him to pray over him, and he just fell flat on the floor. And he never, he was instantly transformed. He never, at least he told me, he never had a, a gay attraction since then. But the point is that this guy, he's written a book on this. He's utterly credible. He's fair. And he's kind of the, a guy that just knows these things on both sides. Go, ahead, go to him. I thank you, Ray, very much. It's on YouTube. The Beckett Cook Show. Thank you. Awesome.